are listening to The Bloodsucking Feminist, your number one Kiwi Scottish podcast focused on the three Fs, fangs, feminism, and fangirling. I'm Catherine. And I'm Keely. And this is episode 12, As Slain on TV, or Fright Night. I would just like to say before we begin, we're only focusing on the original Fright Night and the Fright Night remake from 2011, not the sequels of either movie. Did you know that they had sequels? Well, I try not to think about that. Yeah, I, I found the Fright Night remake sequel um, in the movie in the in the DVD shop when I went to try and get the original movie out on DVD. Yeah, we we still have those things because uh, I don't have Netflix or anything. A glimpse like that. into the world of New Zealand. Well, we do have Netflix and everything. I just don't. Uh, <laughs> And, of course, we are quite limited by what is actually going to be on our Netflix because of regions. So, that's a a, a sad face for another day. <laughs> um, but there's also a sequel to the original one. Both seem to be about lady vampires. But we're not touching on them. We are touching on creepy dude neighbor vampires instead. Uh, quick warning. We're going to be talking about the generally expected tropes of vampirism as a metaphor for rape and vampirism and sexual assault. So please keep that in mind while listening. Tread accordingly. And also just a a boyfriend who is more keen on having sex than the girlfriend is. Whole lot of patriarchy in this episode. So had you seen Fright Night before? Because I had seen both of them. I'd only... Because the original is... Because the original is one of those movies that my mother really likes. <laughs> well, It's mo- like this and the Lost Boys, basically. Well, speaking of your mother, she must be excited for a new Sherlock Holmes movie. Hell yeah, I'm excited for the new Sherlock Holmes movie. Yeah, I just know because she, you keep, every so often you just post a thing about how, you're watch, how she's watching um, or you're watching um, Game of Shadows. Again. Again. <laughs> Again. <laughs> that is one of about eight movies that my family just watches constantly. Interviews and I'm happy for that. Is interview one of them? Or not? Uh, not as much, but it's definitely one she enjoys when it's on. Yeah. Um, I'd only ever seen the 2011 um, version because I bought a copy that had an ex-rental from a DVD shop. That seems to be the theme with me in this movie. <laughs> um, DVD shop. I'm like, oh, vampires. I like vampires. And hey, it's that dude from the Star Trek movie and Colin Farrell. Alright, let's do this. And I watched it and enjoyed it. But I hadn't seen the original one. I knew it was a remake, but I just never got around to watching it. And now that I have watched it, I'm kind of... Eh. I know you're not supposed to say that the reboot or the remake is a better film, but I totally enjoyed the 2011 version way more than the um, 1985 version. Plus, once I realized the, the vampire of Jerry in um, the original was Prince Humperdinck, I kind of stopped, <laughs> stopped being afraid of everything. You know, any, any chance of me being fearful or whatever was like, <laughs> it's Prince Humperdinck in a sweater. It's a very, very slouchy grey jumper, isn't it? <laughs> no, for me, the, the films are both very fascinating because for me, the Fright Night remake is the exemplification of how to do a remake properly. Take a property that is 
not especially well loved, so you don't have to put up with the whole wow, wow, you've ruined my childhood nonsense. But something that's certainly got enough potential that you can work on it, you can develop it, you can make it evolve into something that would fit our current sensibilities. Yeah. And I think that Fright Night Remake does that perfectly. The remake of Fright Night is written by Martin Oxen, who's a TV writer you probably best known for being a writer on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it's clear that the Fright Night original movie is something she probably watched when she was younger and thought was absolute hot shit. And then she went back to watch it when she was older and was like, this isn't as good as I remember it being. It's kind of weird and rapey and, oh, that makes me uncomfortable. I think I can do better. And she did. Not that I dislike the original. I actually like it a lot, but it's a totally different movie. It's very much of its time. Bad sweaters and all. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a bad sweater. It's just so weird. (laughs) It's Prince Humperdinck in an 80s sweater. Yeah. And he's very All you can hear, whatever he's doing in that film, is someone shouting inconceivable in the background. (laughs) My neighbor's a vampire. Inconceivable. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, he's very visibly in his 40s in this film, which... Which I like. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I wasn't so keen on the reactions of everyone around him. Because, uh, you know, like the scene where he's seducing her on the dance floor and nobody's like, dude, you're 40. Yeah. Colin Farrell, he was about 35 or something when the movie was made, as opposed to like 45 or something for um, Prince Humperdinck. But it didn't feel quite as odd, which is strange and makes me worried about what kind of media I've been consuming. This is a problem of decades of the film industry deciding that it's any woman over the age of 25 is too old to be seen with a man in his 40s in film. Remember when Maggie Gyllenhaal admitted that she was told that at 37 she was too old to play the wife of a 55-year-old in a film? Yeah, you apparently need to be physically young enough to be their kid. Look at everyone that keeps getting cast alongside Tom Cruise. Or Jennifer Lawrence, (laughs) in the other direction. Yeah, we know what you're doing there, David O'Russell. So that definitely comes up in fright night which we'll get to but i think we should actually explain what the film is about first okay so and i think part of what makes the film so good for remake is the general base concept which is dude think the new guy next door is a vampire dude next door turns out to be a vampire and he's targeted the guy's girlfriend guy must go to some sort of tv b-list celebrity for help that's basically the concept i mean you could do another version of it but instead of a guy with his neighbour next door. It'll be some girl today, either he's making moves on her or her sister, and she decides to go to, I don't know, Rochelle Mead for help. But anyone That would be pretty cool. I'd yeah, watch go- that. <laughs> yeah, you know, she, she reads a lot of vampire stuff. She's like, okay, I'm going to go for the, the writer who lives nearby. God, what if that writer was Anne Rice? <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> she'd be slightly more helpful than, say, Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> I'm just imagining Stephanie Meyer throwing like piles of money at them. Yeah, some some writers would be more useful, others maybe not. <laughs> but that's what's really interesting about both versions of Fright Night. Which it's the, I wouldn't say realistic, but it's doing what we as viewers and consumers of pop culture would do in that situation, which is, what happens if a vampire moves in next door? Well, what is my reference point for vampires? Is it the Vincent Price-esque TV host that shows trashy vampire movies on TV or is it the Chris Angel style magician who bills himself as a vampire expert in Vegas? I mean, David Tennant as Chris Angel will never not be funny. 
Oh, it's brilliant. We'll get to that. But it is Inspired. so crotch-grabbingly wonderful. Yeah, it's like, what is your reference point with dealing with vampires? Pop culture. Back in the early days, like in books like Dracula, they, they didn't know what a vampire was because it hadn't permeated their pop culture. Now, you can't do a vampire film, really, or book or say, without some acknowledgement of there already being vampires around. Even Bella had to Google yeah, I mean, and and they sort of dropped that up through with the um the remake. They they'll all drop in a few mentions of other um vampire works, including Twilight, because obviously it's the most pertinent and visible example of vampire pop culture at the time. I think that's the reason that the film didn't do as well at the box office. I think it was beginning to get to the end of the vampire fatigue. Yeah, well, at least that which round... is a shame because I really like this movie. I'll just quickly note because it references um explicitly by name Dracula, Twilight. And Dark Shadows, which is which was interesting because Dark Shadows was the reference the mother makes. Yeah, and she's not of the generation of Dark yeah, Shadows. Yeah, so she's so she's just sort of you know it's like that show that show Dark Shadows. Yeah, it's that thing, you know, the thing, the thing that my dad sort of watched or whatever. The thing from the thing, you know. Yeah. Which is the other way that we reference pop culture. We can never remember it. The Buffy speak. Yes, and of course there is a Buffy reference in there, but it's not explicitly by name. There's a reference to. David Tennant's Peter Vincent not wanting to join their Scooby gang. Because, of course, it's Mighty Noxon. It's uh, fiction as metafiction. Yeah. You know, it, which is, of course, nothing new. But I think it's employed in a really fascinating way here. Back to the original Fright Night, I think. Yes. As I said, I, I really preferred the, the remake to this one. I think just in terms of tone and setting things up for later payoff, the original movie doesn't quite work. Like, I was watching, it was like, Dude, they're just pulling that out of their ass now. There were aspects of accepted vampire canon, but they just sort of show up in the climax to make things tougher. Did you... Yeah, to me, the script felt like it had been possibly badly edited. Like, there are things that just sort of jump to massive conclusions. The big one being, this is another reincarnated love story. But it's never actually talked about. It's just... Amy, who's the protagonist, Charlie's girlfriend, wakes up in the vampire's house. There's a painting of a woman who looks just like her. And he goes, she's a woman I used to know. And it's like, oh, okay then. Yeah, and we'll before that. that, he says to his um, living zombie friend slash boyfriend, she just she looks just like, and that that's it, until the, the, the scene with the painting again. So early on in the movie, I just had the, oh, God damn it, it's another reincarnation romance film. And then it turned out to not be because they completely forgot about it for most of the film. It felt like a moment of, well, we need to make the vampires sympathetic. Let's add this one thing, but never mention it again. Yeah, or they, you know, they, they filmed that last bit, like, oh, crap, we need to put in some foreshadowing. And they refilmed the scene. Thankfully, the remake drops this aspect because it's my least favorite thing in vampire fiction. Particularly Dracula retellings, but you do see it pop up in other stories. Yeah, it, I mean, it has been done differently or subverted. I mean, we all know that the, the Vampire Diaries had this trope, or it seemed to have this trope. But then it's not really a reincarnation romance, but it turns out the dead chick's not actually dead. Yeah. Which, you know, and thus it made it interesting, because they weren't obsessed with the reincarnated girl at all. I mean, they were obsessed with her, but she wasn't reincarnated. So you get points for semi-legitimacy there. Yeah. I mean, you almost got it. You're reaching. So one of the things that's really fascinating about both versions of this story is the vampire himself, Jerry. Jerry, yes, what kind of Jerry. name is Jerry? 
I'm really surprised they kept that name for the. For the well, remake. this was like, one of the things. Jerry? What it reminded me of was, and I wonder if this was a deliberate reference point. Is the moment in the first Suki Stackhouse book and in True Blood where Suki meets the Dude. vampire and asks him what his name is, and he says Bill, and she laughs because it's like, who the fuck calls a vampire Bill? <laughs> I know, right? There are expectations you have because you've read all the books and you've watched all the films, and you're expecting something more aristocratic. But actually, what he's done is kind of whether it's his real name or not, his he is making sure that he fits perfectly into contemporary American suburbia. Well, at least in the eighties version. I don't know about Jerry. He's about a generation too young to be a Jerry in the remake. Jerry is such a non-threatening name, or at least it, you would think so. But there are been a couple of douchey Jerrys. It's not the Grand Lestat or the whatever. Even like a Louis. I mean, there's a continental vibe. Yeah, to it's it. not an Angel or a Spike or a Drusilla or a. Um, what would be the perfect name to fit into this, you know, cut out suburban street that looks like every other suburban street in the area? He's hiding in plain sight, but not really doing as great a job as he thinks he is, I think. Well, he's doing that thing of when you move into a new area and you want to be nosy, but you also want to be polite. So, you know, in the remake, you know, Tony Collette is clearly perving on him, but, but it's nothing beyond that. She doesn't think there's anything more sinister going on. She's more kind of mildly annoyed by the mess he's making. And in the um, original, he's specifically targeting sex workers. Yeah. We'll get to that later, but it is worth noting just how easily he kind of slides into that suburban life. He has the nice house. He talks to the neighbours. He seems quiet and unassuming. He wears nice jumpers. His, his The guy he lives with seems nice. <laughs> I'd totally forgotten about his, like heterosexual life partner in the original <laughs> who gets on his knees to like tie his does he tie his shoelaces or something so. and his legs so wide open you know, he puts like, his oh, head on his shoulder and stuff like this I don't know which where... is deliberate um, I read an interview with this I think it was the editor of the cinematographer in the movie and he said no that was on purpose so for what purpose well that's the thing because this was made smack bang in the middle of the AIDS crisis which we discussed. So is this the sexual, possibly gay, metrosexual dude is evil and should be killed? Are we going to go for that again? The deviant vampire. Yeah. Because he's not just preying on sex workers, he's preying on the barely legal. Depending on what state they're in, they're probably the illegal. Yeah, I think... Well, it's definitely creepy and not very good because, you know, he's 45 and she's supposed to be like 17 or something. He's evidently older than her. I like that he's evidently older and they haven't gone for the sort of eternally youthful vampire thing, which I think still makes for a really icky power dynamic. But it does just hammer home that whole older man, younger woman thing that we see in fiction that's never addressed as being either a problem or being something of a awkward power dynamic. Because how many films have we now seen with Emma Stone being shacked up with a guy in his 40s or Jennifer Lawrence or Scarlett Johansson... Or every, you know, teen comedy where the teens are played by uh, actors in their mid to late 20s. Well, so we don't even know what a teenager looks like on film anymore. Yeah, well, Amy in the original um, Fright Night was played by like a 27-year-old. I did not realise that until I looked it up. But then I watched the rest of the film and the bit where she's turned to vampire. was like, yeah, she just suddenly looks like she's 27 now because they changed the makeup and everything. So it just looks really weird when she's trying to eat. I mean, they don't just age her up. They do they make her boobs look bigger? <laughs> Is I it just am I, I just know, being a pervert? I don't know, but she suddenly seems to have a lot more hair. 
Yeah, she's got Claudia syndrome. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just like she had these short little, you know, 1980s girl curls, and then suddenly, whoosh! Which is a full Bonnie Tyler hair. Even longer than that. Which is strange because, you know, for some reason the girl in the portrait still has 1980 girls, 1980s girl hair. It's like they couldn't even, you know, bother trying to time period it. <laughs> it, just, it was just little details like that that made, made it just feel eh to me. We touched on it briefly earlier, but I think we need to emphasise the ways in which this film deploys sex workers. The ways in which both films deploy sex workers, I should say, but particularly the original. Because Jerry's preferred victim in the original is sex workers. Women who uh, come to his house are invited in are essentially sneered at and dismissed by the rest of the film, particularly Charlie's bratty friend Ed, who in the, the original is just kind of an irritant more than anything else. He basically gets um, a murder boner at the idea of a serial killer targeting um, prostitutes. Yes. Yeah. The idea of a serial killer targeting some of the most vulnerable women in our society is amazing to him. Uh, But it does highlight something that we see a lot of in pop culture and in general um, feminist attitudes, unfortunately, which is the way that these women are basically seen as expendable. The disposable sex worker is, I think, what it's called on TV tropes. The women, some of the women who are the most discriminated in society by the authorities, even by other women, uh, and Jerry praising them because he knows that no one will miss them. And we see this a little bit in the remake. One of the victims that Jerry invites to her house is a go-go dancer called Doris, who is Charlie's neighbour. So when he's checking up on them, Charlie's girlfriend, Amy, makes some sort of sneering comment about her being a stripper. Charlie corrects her and says she's a go-go dancer and she says, no, she's, she's a stripper, basically. Yeah, take away a little bit more fabric and she's a stripper. Which is a really shitty comment for Amy <laughs> to make, but it's pretty, you know, the kind of comment you would expect people to make about it's... someone who is a sex worker in Nevada. Yeah, and teenage girl threatened by boyfriend's hot neighbour. Yes. Because she's seen... Doris is actually a really fascinating character for the brief time that we get her. She goes over to Colin Farrell's well, house. This is not the first for... time we meet her. I just want to point out because there is a scene yes. before. So she's, you know, Charlie and his mother's neighbor. Um, she's out. She's pulling, bringing in the trash. You know, she's in sweatpants and a singlet top. And just, you know, just general, I'm mucking around the house doing my chores before I go off to work tonight sort of thing. She's nice. She's friendly. She's just sort of, you know, being nice to the, the dorky teenager who's clearly got a crush on her. But she's not mean about it or anything. And then the conversation between um, Charlie and his mother is not about Doris being in the um, go-go dancing industry, but more about his attitude towards looking, his looking at her. Yeah, it's a more, more of a jovial moment. It's clear that this is their neighbour and they got on really well. And she's a nice woman. Yeah. She's very friendly and sweet. Yeah, and even though t- he's talking about how she had a word printed on the butt of her sweatpants, the word is lucky. It's really just mundane. They're essentially, I think they're like juicy couture sweatpants, yeah. the kind of thing that you always have Paris Hilton wearing, which are just the kind of thing you mull around in the house yeah, when or you're she's cleaning bring- or lying around. She's bringing in the rubbish bin. Yes. She's, she's not, you know, dressed up fancy. She's just got her hair done in a ponytail. She's like, whatever. She's yeah. just a neighbour who happens to be a go-go dancer. Exactly. So she gets invited around to Jerry's house and she looks well up for it because he's Colin Farrell, okay? And this is Colin Farrell at, like, prime hotness, which is very key for the role, but I also want to mention This is doing jobs around the house, Colin Farrell, too. 
Yes. He's, he's getting his hands dirty in the garden. He's really polite to Tony Collette. You know, he knows how to work that charm. So he invites Doris around and kills her. Charlie calls police. The police turn up. And his response is basically, well, we were just having such loud sex. And they, they buy it. Cause, and they're, they're essentially high-fiving him. Yeah. Well, I would just like to point out, she isn't actually dead. She's been attacked. Yes. But Charlie well, yeah, at this point... Yeah, attacks her. But Charlie doesn't know this at the time. And eventually he breaks into Jerry's house and finds her in this bunker system that he has built in the basement of his house. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to point out, he gets there via a secret door in the in the wardrobe. And in the wardrobe is hanging uniforms. Police uniforms and uniforms of other trusted people. Which is a creepy little detail. That's a sociopathic detail right there. And important to note, and we'll get back to that later, but when he goes in, Charlie goes in to get Doris and she's locked in the one of the little sort of dungeons, because it is basically a dungeon. Uh, Jerry comes back and then feasts on her. And the scene is, I mean, the rape connotations are clear. They're supposed to be clear. There's nothing, actually, uh, Charlie's friend Ed puts it best. He says, there's no brooding, there's no seduction. He's the fucking shark from Jaws. He's a predator. And yeah. she pleads and she begs for mercy and he doesn't give it. Yeah, it, it's r- really obvious how just sad and scared she is. She She's not wearing much, but she's not really, you know, she's not being posed in a way that um, shows off what she's revealing. She's you, you, It's focusing on her hand, on her face, maybe her legs going limp, but it's not perfectly shot to show her off. She's just quiet. She's she's a meek little mouse. Yes. And of course, but she's still being I thought she I thought she was being surprisingly strong because she still had enough forethought to not give away Charlie and even warn him to just stay quiet. She still think she you know, she she thinks she's dying, but she's like, I'm not gonna let him do this to the dorky kid across the street. Exactly. Which I know there'd be a lot of people be like just, you know, begging for help, but she doesn't. Because she knows what's gonna ha- what would happen to Charlie. It's a little detail, but I thought it was pretty clear. It makes it clear that they have some kind of friendship. Yeah. In that she did know exactly what was going to happen, that she wasn't going to... Well, she thought she wasn't going to survive it, but she wasn't going to drag him down with her. Yes. And when he eventually gets Doris out of there, her demise is... Pretty shocking. It, well, you saw how he just sort of was like, "What?" You'd think this would be this is the perfect subversion of that. You know, he he saved the girl. Or, you know, he's been a hero. It's going to be fantastic. She's going to hug him, and but no, she steps out, already turned, and whoop! like bits of her go flying and then burst into ashes. It's such a shock to the system. Yeah, both in universe and for the audience because you know everything is going the we we had the close call we managed to get out and then wham plus again it's a nice example of setting up what the stakes actually are this is what actually happens in this universe and this is what will happen if the vampire isn't stopped it's brutal it's monstrous it's agonizing and no, there's something to fight. There's no seduction here. Whereas yeah. in the original film, the scene where, which considered kind of the 
the most memorable scene in the film, Charlie and Amy try to hide from Jerry in this proper, like, cheese ball, synths and guitars, 80s club. And Jerry basically has a sort of as as seductive a dance as you can get with synth music (laughs) with Amy. And she's very into it. Yeah, she's like, you know, look, here's my neck. Here's my neck. Here's my neck. Come on. Look, I'm pulling like she's back. pulling down her top and everything. <laughs> I know, right? And she's then just look, like, "Yeah, come on here." It's like, "Yeah, come on, chat down. Come on, let's do this." Yeah, yeah, jugular. So it is a very ATC, and also he's wearing that grey jumper, <laughs> which is even Does better. Does he only have the one jumper? Whereas you know, New Jerry is like going around in his tank top, and he's in a polo shirt at one point. You can't be threatened by a guy named Jerry in a polo shirt. Yes. Even if he is Colin Farrell, it's like, huh, polo shirt. But that um, dance scene, he basically takes Amy back to his place, conveniently puts her in her, a dress that looks an awful lot like the one Marilyn Monroe wears in The Seven Year Itch. There's the reincarnation portrait bit, and then they have kissing, and then... Amy's basically like, oh, look, this halter top comes undone really easily. You go for it. When he bites her, the noises she's making is... It's sex noises. It's it's orgasm noises. Yeah. Um, we don't get that in the remake. No, no, we don't. Like, the scene in the club, she's terrified and he's just, like, dominating the, the sequence. But nobody notices because it's in a club and it looks like there are a couple making out. So it's about that bystander effect. Nobody seems to notice what's going on. And when he carries her over his shoulder and she is begging for help, there's some guy in the club who just congratulates him on his conquest. Yeah, which is... It's it's horrible. (laughs) It's gross, gross, gross. Gross, gross, gross. Which I think is something we need to talk about. We've talked about the difference in the attitude between uh, on the disposable sex worker trope and Doris. Like, she actually has a name in the film as opposed to some another face. Not even a face mentioned on the news um, as in the original. But just the attitude towards sex and, well, the, the general rapiness of, rapey undertones of vampirism really differs from this. And I spoke yesterday in tweets to you about it. And it's sort of you could almost feel the difference of when it's written by a woman. Not saying oh, yeah. that, you know, it has to be written by a woman to get this this feel. Because, I mean, I suppose Greg Rucker could do a fantastic similar sort of thing. But it speaks to more towards a lived experience of dudes being creepy. The idea of the, the cultural consciousness of being a woman and dudes not really getting boundaries. Like, no, I don't want to swap numbers. or It's the importance of being able to tell your own story. Yeah. I mean, it's still focused on Charlie, but you can just feel it with the the change in his attitude and the increased visibility and agency of, well, Amy and also the newer character of his mother, of Charlie's mother. She does appear in the original film, but she's very absentee. She's more somebody yeah, to worry about. which is a common about. trope in horror in general, and particularly in the 80s, where it was, you know, the joke that Peter Vincent makes when he gets fired from his Vincent Price-style TV show is people only want to watch maniacs and hockey masks slashing up virgins. And in those films, there don't tend to be a lot of parents around. Whereas here, 
she's played by Tony Collette, who's great. She's witty. She's got a job. She has a really good relationship with her son. She's not at all disapproving of him having a relationship with Amy. She's disapproving of him ditching his mates for her and for the the cool gang. But she doesn't really, you know, she makes slide comments more than anything else. Yeah, you can see when Charlie's trying to do the whole I need to break up with you to protect you thing. You can just see her in the background just making up what kind of idiot do I have for a son face? Yeah. And you know, when... she's, she's debating, it's like, okay, so when do I step in? Or is Amy ha- Amy's handling this? Okay. You know, she, she's ready to step in and be a parent, but she's going to do that once it's clear that Amy is not going to do it herself. Yeah. They still get rid of her as a character in a sense that she gets knocked out and is in hospital, but it's partially... Well, if she stayed conscious, she would just solve this problem really quickly. Yeah. She staked him with a real estate sign. Yeah, I mean, she gets shit done. But she's also really savvy to Jerry. I mean, she flirts with him, but then she says, oh, that guy, you know, he's a player. I'd rather not. Yeah. Women do have that kind of sixth sense. But almost like, well, if I was younger, I would totally, you know, take that for a ride. But he's my neighbor and I've got a kid and it would just be awkward and... She's been hurt by probably Charlie's dad. Yeah, there's a little more of the daddy issues in the remake, whereas in the first one, it's never really mentioned what happened to the dad. He's just kind of, he's not there, which is fine. I mean, I'm not annoyed for daddy issues. (laughs) One of the things that is particularly heartening about the way that uh, Charlie's mother changes in the remake is when he asks her to believe him, she does. There's a little bit of an arm twisting, but she sides with him. Yeah, the sequence is, um, you know, Charlie's acting kind of weird. He's been putting crosses and garlic everywhere, and he's told his mother it's some sort of, you know, joke for Amy. And she's like, oh, okay, we'll we'll go with this. The kids these days. Yeah, she's like, "Eh, well, it's not harming anyone. I'll step in if it gets worse. You know, she's allowing him a certain level of freedom and individuality and letting him, you know, cock up on his own. But she's, you know, she's again watching and ready to put her foot down and step in if anything comes to it. Meanwhile, Jerry's at the front door knocking and wants to be let in. And Charlie's like, no, no, don't let him in. She's like, what? Why? And he starts, Jerry starts saying, my son's been harassing me. He broke into my house. And you can almost see her break. But when Charlie says, please just trust me. She's like, okay, I'm not sure about what the hell it is you're doing. And if you were totally doing what he says you were doing, you're in trouble. You can see that sort of expression on her face. But she's like, no, if you want to handle this, you go call the cops. And then she's like, okay, explain. She actually listens to her son. Yeah, and it cuts through so many of the lazy tropes that you see in fiction, which is, oh, the adults will never believe you. And then you have to do so much hoop jumping to move forward. Whereas this one, it takes a plot in a really interesting direction. Because then Jerry, you get to see just how adept he is at fucking with humans. He just immediately goes violent. When and the it, gas lighting doesn't work, he literally lights the gas. He goes home, gets a shovel, goes to the backyard, starts digging. And they're like, what? And at this point, um, Charlie's mother probably like, yeah, I made the right call here. Because seriously, what the hell is he doing in my backyard? He digs up the gas line, pulls it so hard that it rips it from the appliances, sending gas into the house. And then he sets it on fire, blowing balls at just blowing everything up. This is one of the vampire stories where the established mythology includes having to invite a vampire into your house. They won't invite him in, so he blows up their house. No house, no invite. Okay, I need to get in that house. They won't let me in. I'll just get rid of the house. And he's just so 
calm and methodical about it. It's like a switch. Away goes that, you know, charming neighbor. Look, your kid's being kind of, can we just sort this out like adults? You know, I don't want to have to call the cops. But he looks like he's doing the neighborly, neighbor solid, you know, talking to the mother before doing anything about it. See if we can nip it in the bud that way. Moment that doesn't work, off comes the mask. Out comes the brutality. And whoop. It's instant. From a guy who is clearly so used to playing the long game, it's fascinating to watch him just remove that mask so firmly. You can just watch it go in a second. It was little details like that that just made me appreciate the remake a lot more. Because he's just that dude next door who's acting kind of weird. You see little bits of monstrosity, but there's nothing so... It's oddly human the way he immediately switches when he gets rejected. Exactly. He gets denied what he wants and bam, you've got to be punished. And it makes you wonder how often people discover that because the film, the remake opens with one of Charlie's former friends and his entire family being slaughtered because he's been spying on him. It's just done so quickly. He doesn't bother to mentally screw with him. It's just instant death. Whereas with Ed, he he fucks with him a little bit. The remake starts with a really explicit, you know, just hunting down of the sky. It opens on a traditional sort of horror trope. Everyone's dead in the house. The terrifying feeling of this teenage boy hiding under the bed where his mother's dead body is on. You know, he's gone to his parents' room and he's hiding under the bed. There is a really creepy scene where while he's under the bed, in the background, the body of, I think it's his dad, is slowly dragged away. And then, well, he's trying to load the gun and then... He drops something and he goes to grab it and dad is gone. There's effective fuckery there. This is a man who knows how to play the psychological long game, but clearly just hunts. He has the patience to do it, but he also revels in just being a monster. And it's an interesting contrast from even in the original, he clearly gets that moment to be broody and potentially sympathetic with the reincarnated love element, which is never expanded on. Yeah. (laughs) Whereas here he is just doesn't have time for anything any of that shit he's a hunter and he's doing what he's doing he's the fucking shark from jaws yeah the original movie seemed a bit confused about exactly what tone it's vampirism well it seemed to be just a bit confused about what it wanted its vampires to be we've spoken before about how they just seem to pull elements from the canon out of its butt no foreshadowing whereas you know obviously this opening sequence immediately brings into a certain feeling and certain abilities mm-hmm. whereas the original just didn't quite seem that strong Plus, you know, it's Prince Humperdinck in a sweater. With very 80s hair. So Amy. Yes, Amy. Amy, Amy, Amy. So Amy is, and I'm putting this in quotes, the girlfriend. In the original, she is mostly just the girlfriend. But they don't seem to be part of an especially cool group at high school. They just I think they just kind of are there. Not really part of the, the high school ecosystem. Yeah. Um, but he's been in a relationship with Amy for about a year. And she's not put out. And he's peeved about it. Yeah, but he also like seems... I'm not saying that he's pressurized into it, but he clearly thinks that sex is something that they should be doing. Yeah. And when he has something to distract him from not doing sex, which in this case is perving on his neighbor, he does it. <laughs> it's, well, it's still connected to sex. Cause yeah, but a naked more, woman. he seems far more interested... He seems far more interested in being the voyeur than anything else. <laughs> like, he really gets into spying Yeah, he, he's not really, I mean, he's not really making much of an effort to set the mood. I mean, he's like, yeah, come on, let's do it. While Peter Vincent's still in the background. Yes, the exactly. He's so distracted by 
these vampire stories. So, of course, when he starts talking about his neighbor being a vampire, Amy's response is, oh, dear Lord, this crap. And while she doesn't seem, you know, she doesn't seem very willing or interested in sex at the beginning, there is clear frustration as the movie goes on that actually she's feeling neglected and, you know, you were so keen on me before, am I being dropped so easily for the guy next door? Yeah, so when the guy next door does pay attention to her in the sort of, you know, seductive synthy dance section, she's really into it. Because it's that whole younger woman, older man, older experienced sexual man fantasy. He, he knows how to treat you right. Yeah. Theory. In theory. He's not going to murder you on your wedding night like that buttercup lady. <laughs> Goddamn Ruthven. She's really just there as the prize, the victim, the way for the two men to show who's boss to each other. Yes. And this is emphasized more in the remake with an interesting element of what Amy is in this world. Amy is part of the quote-unquote popular crowd. She's played by Imogen Poots, so she is absolutely gorgeous. And Anton Yelchin, who's adorable, but he's like... Not in the same dorky league. cute. Yeah, he's dorky. Like, chicks dig that. You know, that is a thing yeah, that this chick digs. But I mean, remember, this is the guy who also has homemade videos of him and his mates dressed up as, like, sword yes. fighting dudes with he's a larper yeah he's a larper basically and lightning bolt lightning bolt but that's the thing is charlie is a nerd who dropped all of his nerdy loves in order to fit in with the cool group which basically involves doing nothing but kind of talking about having sex that seems to be all they talk about and making fun of his coffee yes <laughs> basically making fun of any feminine elements by james franco's brother but yeah, that's the crowd that Charlie has decided to be part of and in order to do that, he drops two of his friends, including Ed, who's played by Christopher Mintzplass, playing yeah. the nerd again. Yeah. <laughs> and basically he he assumes that the only way that any woman like Imogen Poots is ever going to be interested in him is if he fits into this particular kind of masculinity. And later on, she chastises him for thinking that she would be that shallow, which I appreciated. Everyone sort of acknowledges that... Um... Charlie has dumped his friends. Ed really lays into him for ignoring him and their friend Adam, who was the guy who... It was Adam, wasn't it? The guy who died in the yes, opening it was Adam. We're trying to solve this problem and we're trying to, you know, get you in, be you our friend again, but you're just ignoring us. So I'm going to blackmail you with videos of us laughing. But that's the thing is, Charlie's a dick. They're all dicks. Ed is a dick as well, but you completely understand why he would resort to being so kind of insidious with Charlie. Yeah, he's... Um, he's basically been told that he's worthless. And that doesn't excuse any of the shit at Ed Pools because he basically talks about Imogen Poots in the same way that all of the men in this film Yeah, talk he's about really a good example of um, several geek social fallacies. Yeah, he, he would probably call himself a nice guy. Capital <laughs> than the nice there. He would be probably on certain parts of the internet now. Whining. With a fedora. <laughs> I'm just imagining him going milady everywhere now. <laughs> he would have gotten in his Hugo Awards uh, nominees list really quick. Let's put it that way. See, look at us keeping up with the current topics. But what goes on with Amy is it really emphasizes the way in which pretty much every man in this film sees her as being a potential piece of property or the idea of women as property. Uh, whereas in the original, Jerry pursues Amy because of the, the reincarnated lost love nonsense. We think. Here he pursues her. We, we think. think. We think. We don't know. But in the remake, he pursues her because Charlie loves her and it would hurt Charlie. And also she's hot. And she's hot. You know, but he gives a 
with the first time he tries to gain entrance into Charlie's house, and it's clear that Charlie knows that he's a vampire and he's not going to be letting him in, he gives him this really gross little speech about like sexualized women. And it includes and Charlie's mother and how desperate she is for some good, strong vamping. I mean, it's a really skeezy moment. It's a total... I think that's really the first time you see the facade. And it's a total the, power play. You know, I am the alpha man. You're the whatever. I am the predator here. You are the prey. Which is interesting as well because the way he talks about those women, it's worth noting that... Before we're really properly introduced to him, his victims are all young men. When they call attendance in Charlie's class every morning, more and more people are missing and they're all guys. It's three dudes, in the, including Ed. Um, although it does seem Adam does have a sister. Yes. But of the prey we see, there's Adam and his family, including sister. There's Ed, although Ed just seems to be more of a... a I've got to get rid of this problem. This guy is actually might be useful. But we'll talk about the pool seduction sequence in a bit. Uh, the two douchebags. And then <laughs> original Jerry. But then again, that's just more of, I need to get rid of a witness kill. And then you only really see more women in his underground basement full of vampires in the walls. That is when you start seeing the female vampires. Only woman we actually see him taking out is Doris. Yes. So I don't... No, the way that he picks his victims is also really fascinating because when roll call is called, nobody seems to really care that these people are gone. And as uh, Tony Collette no- notes, she's an estate agent. Uh, people are moving out of the suburbs. People don't tend to stay in the Vegas suburbs. They come to work. They come for breaks, but they, they move on with the season. It's temporary, it's fleeting, and the neighbourhood that they live in, which is basically like a row of houses in the middle of the desert, you know, if you leave there, no one really cares, because they totally understand why you would want to leave. And so many people have windows blacked out because they work nights. So Las Vegas know, it's a perfect an... place for you to kind of go missing. Yeah, Las Vegas is an excellent place for vampires, I have to say. It's such a perfect location, you know. It's a town that comes alive at night. You're not weird if you only come out at night. You just, you know, work. It's Sin City. Yeah. Lot, a big transient popula- big population, transient population. So even if you're not killing, you still can get a wide variety of food. But also, if Adam... What happened to Adam in the opening sequence is any indication he's taking out families. And that's why nobody's being reported missing. Because, you know, there's no parent going, where's that kid? It's a really smart tactic, actually. And I think it's very... And a really interesting way for that movie to evolve and the way that it treats the concept of the vampire in suburbia, particularly American suburbia. And the only person who really seems to care that these people are going missing is Ed. And that ends badly for him because Jerry gets his hands on him. His hands all over him he, yeah, in he, the pool. Yeah, I was watching it. was like, huh, we don't really see the male-on-male vampire seduction sequences very often. Oh, it's really seductive. <laughs> Like, he's just in his polo shirt, slowly descending into the pool, talking about, you know, joining him and the power and the playing off all of... He's got Ed pegged. He knows exactly what Ed's insecurities are. He's a skinny, white, beta male. He could give him the power. Come with me and I'll teach you the game. Yeah, it's like a pickup artist moment, isn't it? He's seducing him with the idea of sex and power. Not seducing him sexually, but with the idea of sex and what this new thing can offer him. 
and being the sad, desperate, lonely little boy it is, it doesn't try and run. Well, probably he's also scared, but later on he is not unhappy with his choice. He still looks like a skinny little white boy. Just whiter. Once again, Vegas, how are these people so white? <laughs> I know. I mean, you can understand the people who work at night being so white, but it's like... Yeah, you go out during the day. <laughs> We've seen you. Does he just like have this giant bottle of sunblock just in his house just, like every morning? Slather it on. I just want to point out that Ed is shown to be kind of pathetic in both movies. Yeah, yes. he's he's just the annoying, clingy friend in both of them, but with different aspects to it. But um, his death in the original Fright Night, well, it's kind of sad and pathetic, really. He's just a kid who got bit. It's really drawn out. Yeah, it's like he accidentally gets staked, and he's just like slowly turning back into a person. Now, this is another thing where a sudden vampire transformation thing just shows up. He suddenly turns into a wolf. With no... Well, that's a Dracula thing. Yeah, I know. It, you know, it's pulled from vampire canon, but it, the movie itself doesn't set itself up for that. That would have been too much to ask, Catherine. I know, Way I know. Way too much. Because it does, sort, both of them sort of do rely on the idea that you know something about vampires, but it needed a bit more internal consistency with what it decided to actually show up. He gets accidentally staked, and it, it's just long and drawn out, and... He's just a sad little poppy dying. Yeah, and Pierre Vincent is really shaken by this. Yeah, whereas in the remake, it's a fight sequence, and the fight is between him and Charlie, which in a story-wise sense makes a lot more sense. You know, the final confrontation between these two ex-friends. This is what Charlie has to deal with now that he's abandoned his friend and didn't listen to him in the first place and things like that. It's a final kind of moment of closure for Charlie because the final thing that Ed says as he's dying is it's okay. It's more personal, whereas it was yeah. just like, crap, we need to do something about Ed. Uh, Peter Bay accidentally stakes him and he dies painfully. Okay, let's film it. I think they just wanted to show off their makeup work. Yeah. The effects in this movie were done by the guy who did the effects in Star Wars and Ghostbusters. We, like, when you've got that kind of caliber, you know, you may as well use wait, it. We're talking the original or the remake? The original. Okay. Because I was just like, wow, this is like really 80s special effects. Like some of it's like looks like a really early Weta Workshop stuff. Um, brain dead. Or dead alive, as the Americans call it. I think we need to talk about Peter Vincent. Yep, Peter Vincent. Named for two very... Peter Cushing yeah. and Vincent Price, obviously. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah so just in, in case original... you missed that, it's Peter. It was really subtly done. So, in the original, Peter Vincent is played by Roddy McDowell, the famed actor, Roddy McDowell, and he's essentially played as Vincent Bryce. Yeah. Not quite as mannered, but basically he is this former star of these really terrible, trashy, trashy kind of like lower budget hammered horror films. Yeah, we see a scene that is really, really obviously a take on um, the Lucy trying to seduce Arthur as a vampire in bed sequence, except, you know, I think the guy's called Jonathan, so they've obviously done one of those smushing... Well, you know how towards the end of the Hammer era where basically they decided all we need is blood and tits? It's one of those films. (laughs) And many, many years later, um, Game of Thrones comes along and is like, I've got a new idea for how we can do this. (laughs) Blood and tits. (laughs) Or as Ian McShane said, it's just tits and dragons. So basically, Peter Vincent is the like Elvira-style host 
of this public access <laughs> channel. I'm sorry, but I just imagined Fright Night instead of you know the the girl Fright Night instead of it going them going after um like a vampire author like Rochelle Mead, they go after Elvira. You know Elvira would be totally up. That would that. be amazing. I'd watch that. And Elvira they is like Vampirella and stuff as well instead. But basically, they have similar reactions. Both Peter Vincent's, which is, you're a crazy kid. This is a job. And a job I'm kind of sick of doing because for Peter Vincent, he gets sacked because kids are more interested in watching the slasher movies of the time. This is, you know, it's Friday the 13th, it's Nightmare on Elm Street, it's guys with machetes chasing after virgins. And there's not really a place for the vampire genre there. Because I'm guessing the hunger wasn't uh, wasn't big with the kids. Well, in the remake, Peter Vincent isn't a TV show, so he's basically Chris Angel. As played by David Tennant. I imagine there were a lot of confused Doctor Who fans where they're like, oh, David Tennant's in this movie. And they're like, what? Especially when he starts grabbing his crotch. <laughs> so the leather's a bit choking. Yeah, his act is very, very mannered. It's lots of leather, lots of moustache, lots yeah, of special like, effects. He actually and... pulls the moustache off. It's, you know, yes. and he's got the, the sexy, booby assistant. Played uh, by Sofia Vergara's cousin. He's got some other booby vampire ladies. So it's really clearly running off the booby vampire theme. And then they just keep arguing him and Ginger. They never quite figured out how what exactly the re- level of the relationship was between them. I think it was just like colleagues with really unsatisfying fucking. <laughs> <laughs> they sort of communi- seem to communicate through arguing. Not as hate-filled as it could be. No, it's just more like, this is just what they do. Yelling at her for not coming and doing anything because he's like, you're TiVoing it. You can just pause it. But his entire act is basically what do people expect a vampire show to be? He's giving the people what they want. I mean, if you're familiar with the kind of shows that go on at Vegas, there's a lot of Cirque du Soleil, there's a lot of cabaret, there's a lot of. There's Chris Angel. There's Chris Chris Angel and the Cirque du Soleil have a show together, and it's apparently very popular. He's giving the audience what they want, but he's also a collector of vampire sort of paraphernalia. With his fake honorary degree from Las Vegas <laughs> Which he printed off. He's, he actually gets more development here. I mean, it's pretty stock stuff. It's, you know, a vampire killed my family. But you have a reason for this guy to collect all this stuff, to have it lying around the house, which helps when the big fight happens. But even then, he's still not very good at it. You know, the vampire shows up, and he's like, look over there, and then runs into the panic room. No, he's a self-confessed coward. And he gets this big sort of like heroic moment at the end... But, even, but for him, is he admits self-preservation comes from not being in the middle of the mess. Yeah, and even then, he's still not the most amazingly helpful dude. He buys his vampire slaying stuff off eBay and then is shocked when it doesn't work. And doesn't seem to understand that people don't deliver in the middle of the night. I think David Tennant is clearly having the absolute time of his life yeah. in this role. I know. Some, there are some roles you just need to... Just, I'm running around in leather pants and being an ass and constantly grabbing his crotch just, <laughs> it's really tight and fiddly in there you've got to get it all I, I, wa- I wonder if that was actually in the script or just he just you know started doing it like <laughs> yeah just throw it in you know? well if they filmed on location in Vegas it must have been roasting yeah well they filmed a good chunk of, I think a lot of stuff was done in New Mexico but there was some stuff done in Vegas mostly I think the you know the b-roll type stuff I, I looked it up on Wikipedia because I wanted to see if it was filmed anywhere in Nevada or something like that. You know, if they had any information on the, the sub- suburb type that it was set in. But with 
the entire act that Peter Vincent puts on, there's a particular kind of masculinity that he's cloaking himself in. It's mannered, it's that, to use that awful term that was really popular for a few years, metrosexual. It's probably just queer enough, but the impression it's supposed to give is, you know, it's all-powerful battle of vampires. And his sort of on-stage persona is peacocking pickup artist. Yes. Like, it's Russell Brand, basically, isn't Russell it? Russell Brand as Chris Angel, as played by Tim <sighs> Tennant. You know, it's all flash, you know, he pulls off the moustache and everything. Everything is fake, like, except he still wears his eyeliner when he goes to the combat later. Probably because he didn't wash it off, but oh well. Everything is fake. Everything is fake. Hmm, there's a metaphor there somewhere. Yeah, he, he's literally putting on a show of his masculinity. Which well, is... Peter Vincent is similarly doing something. He's putting on the show of what people expect a vampire show to be. Yep. Um, because Jer- of the, the stereotypes he's helped perpetuate. So, basically saying that this sort of is... These new movies, especially, but especially the remake, are about the performance of various types of masculinity? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big theme of the remake, especially. I mean, Like, it is hashtag masculinity so fragile. Charlie denies his geeky true self to fit in with the popular alpha personalities in the school to match up to the girl he's dating. It's this man that puts on this posturing imitation of masculinity that they think is what they need to quote-unquote get girls, not realising how insulted women are by that. Yep, and Jerry puts on a certain type of masculinity to hide the predator he is, which we see a lot of in real life. It's just the predator he is is a violent feeding predator, not a sexual predator. And then, of course, there's whatever the hell Peter Vincent is doing. Well, his is Vegas masculinity. Vegas magician masculinity. He's making cool and dark and gothic, the traditional magician type thing. It's no tuxedos or tails and cloaks and, and, you know, women in elegant robes. It's, I've got leather pants and no shirt and look at the boobs. Yes. Look at all the boobs I can get and watch them disappear and watch them reappear. Fire and sex and literally a performance. Because masculinity is a performance. And that's been your feminist lesson for the day. (laughs) Go home and do homework. Okay, a thousand-word essay on <laughs> vampirism as masculinity performed. If anyone actually writes that essay... Yes, please send it to us. <laughs> you can also do it as a cartoon. Let's touch on Ginger. Ginger is the assistant... Uh, uh, slash... Of... Girlfriend? Really unsatisfied fuck buddy of Peter Vincent. I think they're the two people who care about each other more than they would admit to. You know, it's just that's the way their relationship seems to be working. And because they're, they're like Beatrice and Benedict, but they've never moved beyond the second act. Yeah, and um, the career is having problems, maybe, and that's just sort of frustrating everything. Because she unfortunately becomes a victim to Ed. She, you know, she goes out to get the package and never comes back. And we witness what happens to her when they try and leave in the elevator. She's still partway in the elevator. Meanwhile, Peter Vincent is in his panic room with the wiggly arm of Ed hiding in a corner when he looks into his security cameras and sees her there. And this is what I found interesting. Did you find it interesting? Just his reaction to it? It's just such a small moment. Yeah, most other films would have him like, you know, howl to the heavens or, you know, swear revenge or this would motivate him to get out there and help. But he just sort of gives a meek little sob and just curls up on himself. 
you know, he he's realised what his cowardice has, has done, but he won't do anything to try and remedy it. Not yet, anyway. Well, self-preservation becomes comes before all else. Yeah. And he admits that's how he's survived as long as he has. He cloaks himself in the the allure of power. Doesn't actually have any of it. But I thought it was an interesting way of... I do hate fridging and damseling in distress, but when they do handle it a bit differently... Yeah, I don't know if this fits the definition of fridging. It's not a good moment. Yeah, it's just more like somebody gotta die. Yeah. It's a vampire film. Going after people related to the person that you're trying to target or using people as a... In a vampire film, people are gonna die. And there is going to be a certain amount of cannon fodder. And unfortunately... It's getting the balance right between women who die in a horror film because it's violent and dangerous and people die... And to motivate the dude. Yes, and fridging. Ginger does not motivate him to do jack squat. It's it, exactly. It, it, you know, it emphasizes just people are in the wrong place in the wrong time, and that people are going to suffer until Jerry gets put down. Exactly. Plus, you know, Jerry's got quite the male body count as well. Speaking of, he's also got quite the male body. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is interesting because. Instead of going around in his sweatshirts and everything, he's performing masculinity in a way that would be we would consider more female attractive. He's not, you know, I am the man with the muscles and the no shirt and watch me beat the crap out of everything. He's the slightly rugged, good around the house, cute neighbor guy. He acknowledges that he inconvenienced or not done something nice, you know, and, he'll, and he promises to fix it. And he does it. He gets rid of the dumpster. He, that's what I'm saying. He's one of the things about the way that he integrates himself into suburban life. You gotta keep the right people on the right side of you. Yeah, and he he's recognised who the important woman in the place is, the real estate lady, because she will be bringing him more victims. Plus, Whereas in the original, Jerry has assistance in bringing him victims because of his heterosexual life partner, Billy, and although, his name is Billy. Although if he's a zombie, he'd be like the heterosexual undead partner or something like that. I have no idea what. Well, it's he never can. really established what. Yeah, he he, he's just some guy who you know you can shoot him in the head and nothing happens, and then he. I assume melts. he's Renfield esque. Yeah, he's Renfield some, adjacent. He, he's meant to be that character, but for some reason, it's a zombie type thing. But he seems on way more equal footing with Jerry. Like he's never really ordered around. They they act like roommates, usually boyfriends. Yeah, they're a hunting pair. The type of thing you see on Criminal Minds, except. Um, the, the difference between the two parties isn't quite as severe. I think Jerry is sort of more in charge, but it's not an extreme amount of dominance over Billy. Yeah, because there's a scene in the original film where Peter Vincent calls up Jerry to try and plan like a, a fake-out scene to prove to Charlie that Jerry's not a vampire. This goes as well as you imagine. And Jerry's on the phone talking to him, and Billy's in the background just like pissing himself with laughter. He's like, the, they're enjoying themselves. He's not, you know, the, the meek servant being controlled. He's his bro. You know, if, if these were humans, they'd be the two guys trying to pick up chicks in a bar together. He's his wingman rather than his servant. And it is, as the editor confirmed, deliberately filmed in a homoerotic manner. There is a moment where, as we mentioned earlier, Jerry's in his chair and he's sitting like Lincoln with his legs open and his arms on the... Um, chair and Billy is is he tying his shoe? Mm, I guess so. He he it is. he's at his knees. Let's put it that way. And the the implication is quite clear. And that also 
emphasizes another one of the more implicit messages of the film, and which is the way that Jerry preys on Charlie. Like, you know, preying on both him and Amy, the inexperienced virgins, that's a common horror trope. He's not chasing after them with a machete, but the principle applies. Exactly. It's the machete as the development from the fangs. The machete is his penis. That's pretty much Billy's role. He's there to help bring in the food and deflect any weirdness. Um, in the original film, it's Billy who answers the door to the police, not Jerry. But I did find that really interesting, and I feel like the elimination of that character in the remake makes for a tighter, more tonally consistent piece. I mean, because I feel like they use Billy as kind of an escape from some of the trickier elements of plotting. It's like, well, how did this happen? Well, they've just sent Billy out to do it. The remake could have probably fit Billy in there, but it would probably be more of a something to make them look suspicious rather than. How old was Tony Collette when this was done, by the way? 38, 39 when they made it. Assuming she is the same age as the character, the character is the same age as her, she um, would have had Charlie very young. which Like early 20s, maybe even in late teens. Yep. Which is the Hollywood mother thing, the fact that Tony Collette is considered you know, some sort of aged crone and mother of all yeah, these. I, I would have had her pegged in her early 40s for that movie. Yeah. But she's only like four or four years older than what Jerry would have been. But it's sort of being played off as, you know, he's this hot young guy go- maybe going out after the, the cougar next door. It's that whole, was it, what do they call it, playing Gertrude? I've never heard that phrase before. Uh, I think it's the TV tropes. Um, it's about how um, Hamlet's mother's always so young. About characters' mothers who should be played by at least a generation older is only slightly older or in some cases even younger. Um, like Basically, you know, the, the mothers are young and hot, but they're supposed to be older. They're clearly supposed to be older. It's basically what Jennifer Lawrence has been doing, except with more kids. It's the problem where Maggie Gyllenhaal is too old at 37 to play the partner of a 55-year-old dude. Maggie Gyllenhaal at 37 is too old to play a 37-year-old. Cause I mean, Hollywood sucks. Yeah, because wasn't um, Jennifer Lawrence's character in um, Joy supposed to be like in her mid-30s, late-30s? Well, they were supposed to be like the progression of her from a young age to older, but the original script, she was. Yeah. Uh, Late-30s, early-40s, I think. Yeah, well, in in um, Silver Linings Playbook, that character is supposed to be a widow in her late-30s, early-40s. Why bother actually being accurate to the original book and script when you can get Jennifer Lawrence? David O. Russell is the worst. Like, in American Hustle, she's playing the mother of a child who's about six or seven, and she's essentially supposed to be this boozy, broad, white wine, bitter housewife. Isn't, yeah, isn't she you know, supposed to be the type of character... Isn't the character supposed to be the one that's being cast aside for the hot mistress? Yes. And everyone's just like, wait, what? <laughs> not, not that Amy Adams is unattractive, but in any other film, it would the casting would have been the other way around. Or at least Jennifer Lawrence will be playing the hot mistress. Yeah. Because she's young. She's It, it feels like she's playing dress up in that scene. And I generally like Jennifer Lawrence. I don't like her in David or Russell films because I don't like David or Russell. But it's it's a problem, you know? And you, you kind of see that in, in this because we don't get to see actual teenagers in films. We get to see people our age playing teenagers. And that's probably why in the original when Amy and Jerry are having their you know, seductive dance moment. It's not seen as weird. Yeah, it's just some guy, you know, guy in his 40s with a girl in her 20s rather than him preying on a teenage girl. Isn't it sad, the things that we've been normalised to accept in film? 
and life. <sighs> Patriarchy sucks. <laughs> sucks. Ha ha ha. Did you enjoy that? No, it sucked. You're just digging a hole now. <laughs> well, uh, Daylight Savings has ended here. So um, in addition to watching the Rob Kaczynski takes his clothes off for Daylight Savings video, it means that I have to get up earlier instead of later. And once you go forward to daylight savings, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to like get up just after six. I am not looking forward to that. <laughs> but on the other hand, that means we've been doing this for a whole year. Yay! That means we've been doing this for a whole year. Okay, so I've just got a question. We've sort of mentioned a few times if this was remade again, or at least if the concept was used of older vampire next door predating on teenage girl. What it would have been like if Charlie was a girl and possibly the target, or his best friend was the target, or his sister was the target. How would this change the story? Because we see the idea of Charlie not being believed because he's a teenager. This would probably be ramped up because he's a teenage girl. Yeah. They'd just say, oh, I you've been reading too much... they would have tried to play up the, the female hysteria element. Yeah. You would have, you've been reading too much Twilight. Yes. I mean, the line is kind of a throwaway gag in the remake. Yeah, he's like, I'm and sorry Ed, you think I read Twilight. <laughs> and, yeah, and Ed is really hurt by this because you know masculinity is so fragile but i think if it had been a woman like if this character had been played by like who would be the go-to dorky girl in this film like um cat dennings alia shawcat from arrested development or uh may whitman as well oh from the the duff it would be somewhat you know she wouldn't be unattractive like well i'm not saying that he is unattractive but she'd clearly be the hot nerd yeah, they she, wouldn't. She'd pass. be the Cat Dennings type nerdy character, which would be great. I think Cat Dennings would. Cat Dennings would be like. amazing. But yeah, the way that that character would be handled would be totally different. The whole thing would just be more obviously creepy, rapey. Assuming it was written by someone who recognised that power dynamic, that would be the thing. Otherwise, it would just be you know excuse for more perving on girls. So who would 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 we keep Colin Farrell as the vampire in this situation, or well? We would go with, well, someone of that, like, you know, the, the kind of older guy that media is telling us that we should, as teenage girls or young women, be wanting. Michael Fassbender? Ugh. No, we'll keep calling. Hey, it could have been worse. I could have said Cumberbatch. Yeah, I was going, ugh. That would have been my suggestion if we wanted to go straight up horror. But if you <laughs> wanted to have the masculinity performance thing, keep the Colin Farrell because, you know, he's got that bad boy type thing. And, but... I think given the reputation that Farrell has in the industry, or at least he used to, he's worked really hard to to, to get rid of it, it would be quite natural to keep him. Yeah. So... And he works quite well in either respect. I imagine Jerry would remain much the same. It would be the reaction of every other character. Yeah. You know, Jerry would still be that focal point in the same, just the rotation of all the other characters would be different. There'd be a lot of, you know, you ought to feel flattered that a man is paying so much attention to you. Oh, yeah. And then there'd just be, oh, girls reading way too much Twilight. A hysterical girl. I mean, take out the whole vampirism thing, and it was just, you know, the older neighbour making making moves on the teenage girl next door. If the genders were reversed and Jerry was a woman and Charlie a... Well, Charlie. <laughs> Charlie was well, if the Charlie. genders were reversed, and you know, Jerry G E R I was. <laughs> Jerry, I'm searching Jerry Halliwell now. Oh, <laughs> but if she was preying on the male team. sex workers, which who do exist, yeah, or even you know, female sex workers, the response would be very different. It would be, "Oh, look at that whore," or just even ignoring that aspect. 
instead of, you know, it would be Charlie and Ed going, oh, creepy neighbor, you know, we've got to deal with the vampire and everything. They would just be, you know, fighting to peer in her window, which, you know, he did anyway. They would probably be, be the attitude would be like, you know, stop perving on your neighbor. Or it's like, you should, you know, she's a go- she would be a goal to be attained rather than yes the, the obvious predator that the male vampire would be. It would be a different form of them playing on their masculine, playing masculinity. You know, they can seduce this older hot chick. You know, when you're a teenager, it's the you know the the, the woman, the sophisticated woman in her early twenties or whatever. She's that league above you. And if they could get, you know, she's being nice and paying attention to them. It's like, yeah, we can totally get with that, even when it's completely obvious that they can't. The idea of that, you know, if you play the right role, you can get whatever chick you want. So. She would be. She would probably have to hunt even less because they'd probably just show up at her house, <laughs> and the movie would be over in like half an hour. Well, that's it. Wrapped up, everyone. Let's go home. Yeah. Back into the murder basement. She has a murder basement to rival Hannibal Lecter's. He, I should say. Well, you remember he does all this construction work and he's handing around the house. That's you know that's what he's building with this dumpster. Putting all the mm-hmm. dumpster, all the stuff he's been taking out to build his murder dungeon. No, he's even put in little um, peepholes in the doors. Like he's actually just making. He's just dragging out the agony. Uh, and the version of this door I would love to see, and I think you were the one that suggested this to me first, is one where both the Amy and Charlie roles are women, yeah. and they're just two girls who are their friends are teaming up to to fight the creep down the street. Yeah, that's that's I think what I was positing earlier. If they were sisters yeah. or friends or whatever, you know, nobody is believing what what they're saying, so the only people they have to turn to is each other. They're dealing with the missing stair, except nobody will re- even recognise that there is a missing stair, let alone tell people to avoid the missing stair. And there would still be David Tennant as Chris Angel, because that's amazing. <laughs> I just imagine them sort of sitting in the back row, kind of half rolling their eyes and half getting out the binoculars for the leather trousers. But then he'd have to explain why he's driving around with these two teenage girls. In Vegas? Discussion between the two girls and Ginger would be a bit different, I think, though. Yeah. It would be more like, never date a guy like this. Terrible and bad. So, what are your thoughts on the original, just to make it nice and clear? Original, and then the remake, and then anything else? I like it for what it is. The remake is very much a film of its time. It's very 80s, right down to the jumpers. <laughs> I'm yeah. still obsessed with that jumper. I, I know. Um, like, even the, the synthesized soundtrack, is, you can, I could hear a few notes that reminded me of Labyrinth, which would be, you know, come out the next year. That ding, ding, sort of <laughs> synthesized yeah the original just seemed to be a bit lost i mean if you're looking for a better overall movie the remake is the way to go yeah the the remake is tighter cleaner way better at foreshadowing and setting up the rules of its universe has much more solid characterization everything just feels more full in the remake the vampire's a much more obvious predator the stakes seem way higher it's still got the creepy rape overtones, but it's more acknowledging them as what they are, as opposed to... It's really calling a spade a spade. Yeah. Whereas the second, the original has the, that issue with a lot of, you know, teen comedies of the, of the era, the perving on the girl in her underwear next door with the binoculars. It seems to be like a rule. Teenage boy in these sort of movies has to have a pair of binoculars. Makes sense. <laughs> 
Well, they didn't have the internet then, so... Oh, that's no, one... they just said bad vampire that movies. That is one thing I do think we do need to point out, is that the um, remake really does update itself for the modern world. You know, the stuff that really makes um, Charlie believe is Ed and Adam's video footage of Jerry going about his business. Uh, you know, he drives in with his car and everything, except he doesn't show up on film. And that's where Charlie goes, okay, he's probably got something here. <laughs> it's a really good bit of evidence that just sets it up. Done. No, no more denying it. He had a point. And it shows up consistently too. It's used as um, evidence that Charlie has not been turned. I'm not a vampire. Look at look in your monitor. I'll show up. It's repeating the tropes and the, the elements of vampirism in a consistent way that, again, builds into the storyline. Everything sets up for foreshadowing or is character relevant and pushes forward the plot. It's really tight like that compared to the original. It's just a better overall movie. Like, that is how you remake a movie. Yeah, it's got it. And I'm sad that it didn't do better. Yeah, it's got its own personality and feel. It keeps a lot of things similar, but it also changes it up. And it doesn't try to either remake it too closely or just go ridiculously the other direction. It's, okay, here's the situation. Here's the basic gist. How would it play out in this society? And it's really, you know, it has a train of logic that it follows to the end. So yeah, I mean, I recommend seeing both because I think if nothing else, you've got a fascinating compare and contrast to make there. Yeah, see what happens nearly 30 years later with the different um, societal views and also what happens when a woman remakes a man's story. Which just gives me so many ideas. Like imagine if The Hunger had been written by a woman. It would be the movie. It would be a little different. Yeah, but it would be more close to the movie. But imagine if that book was written by a woman. There would be less description. Like the whole series, like all of the weird directions that that series goes in. If you were to remake any sort of vampire film with the same sort of attitude as we imagine the Marty Noxon rewrite of Fright Night be, what would you do and how would it go? That's a really good question. I haven't really thought about that. There are a few Disney films I'd like to see them do that with. And I think that that's what they're kind of going for with a lot of these live action remakes. Like, they tried it with Maleficent, which I just find really, really boring. Do you have an example? Will I sit um, here for I'm just thinking, you know, we've got all these vampire stories about women in them. Like, it would be interesting if we did have a Dracula that was, you know, scripted and directed and everything by women. What would this do to Lucy and Mina? I would love the visual stylings of the Coppola Dracula, but written by someone who hates the reincarnation trope. It'd be interesting to see just any of these sort of horror films remade with a female eye, or at least a female eye towards the undertones towards women are. I'm not saying that, you know, you do have to have Colin Farrell walking around with a shirt open, but the idea of what would actually seduce these women, or what is the woman reaction to this sort of predation. There's a lot of potential in these stories. It's up to the people who commission them to allow interesting and more diverse people to tell them and not just hand them off to white dudes named Chris. Pine, Pratt, Hemsworth or Evans. For the it's role. like a bloody assembly line. We're having a Chrisus. Yeah, I know. Old joke. I think it was interesting to see um, how a story can change both with time period and with the attitudes of the way it approaches the same story, as you see, as we've talked about,
plenty of things with women, the performance of masculinity, what is perceived as masculine and dominant in different time periods. Because as hilarious as Prince Humperdinck and Asweta is, he actually fits in very closely to what sort of that ideal was, wasn't it? A handsome, well-dressed um, 80s man. Whereas the, the 2011 sort of period, the, the attitude has changed. Anything else? Do you want to contribute to that? Down with masculinity, up with David Tennant in leather trousers. <laughs> Crotch grabbingly good. <laughs> five crotches out of five. <laughs> so after much deliberation uh, and deleted audio, we have decided that next month we'll be doing uh, Hotel Transylvania by um, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough, which is the first in the St. Germain books, at least in the written and published order. It's another one of those series that you have a chronological and a publishing author order. So, get your books out, start reading, and we will see you next month. Remember, you can find us on our website, bloodsuckingfeminist.com, uh, on Twitter at bloodsuckingfem. We're also on Facebook. And anything else you'd like to add there? Send us nice mail. Yes, it is. We'd like that. So don't complain about us hating David Bowie because you're backing up the wrong tree. But yeah, complain about us hating men. And we'll see you next month. Yes. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>